Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, what we learned at the ABA. The American Bar Association Tax Section held its meeting in Washington on May 10th. As often happens, we received some interesting insights into recent and coming regulations. Here to go over what we heard at the meeting is Tax Notes Today legal reporter Eric Yauch and Worldwide Tax Daily senior legal reporter Andrew Velarde. Eric, Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. Thanks, Dave. Eric, why don't we start with you, and let's go over some of the the main issues that came up at the ABA this year. Sure, Dave. I mean, let's take a look at where we were on May 10th of this year as opposed to May of last year's meeting. In last year, last May of 2018, we had the TCJA, but we didn't actually have any regulations yet. So we were kind of waiting on a lot, and there was a lot of speculation. One year later, at this May meeting, we had some final regulations, like, for example, Section 199 Cap A. So we had a lot to actually talk about here. If there's one big takeaway, like one theme from this May ABA meeting, I would say that it's the government is open to change on a lot of things. So, for example, let's talk about opportunity zones. Since May of 2018, we've had two rounds of proposed regulations implementing the opportunity zone regime. Very generally, opportunity zones, what they let you do is roll over capital gains into a qualified funder business, and you get basis step-ups in your rollover amounts after five and then seven years. But the big catch here is any amounts accrued in the fund are forgiven for tax after 10 years. So that's the hook. But as you get into it, though, and go through these two sets of regulations, you'll find out there are a lot of requirements. And so people want even more answers. One thing that IRS and Treasury folks said, speaking at ABA, is that they're actually open to more safe harbors so people can qualify. For example, Stephanie Cummings reported that IRS officials said it was clear people want more safe harbors on how to qualify, and it's something that they're going to consider. So the second round of regulations that just came out within the last few weeks, they provided that to satisfy the use requirement for qualified opportunities on property, 70% of the use of the property must be within that zone. But some have said it's unclear how you would track that property if it can be easily moved within and out of zone. And so that was one example an IRS official said of where maybe more safe harbors could be necessary. But the new regs also provide that to satisfy the holding period for a qualified fund, holding a qualified business, the business must meet the QOZB requirements 90% of the time. Now, people were saying 90% of what time? That's not entirely clear. And so the government officials said, look, that's something we're going to go back and revisit. So the IRS, when it comes to opportunity zones, they're open to change. On one of my panels, one of the big things that that came out is the treatment of Section 1231 gains. So people want to know how this works because 1231 property is generally depreciable property used in a trader business. And if it's held for more than one year, the sale of that property after you net can produce a capital gain, which taxpayers like. And if you net and end up with a loss, it can be an ordinary loss. It's sort of like the best of both worlds. But netting for 1231 property, it typically happens at the partner level, at the individual level. So people wanted to actually know, like, can a partnership defer 1231 gain. And a treasury official confirmed the answer was yes. At the partnership level, if that partnership wants to like roll over gain into a qualified fund, they can roll over 1231 capital gain and it would still qualify. And I think that was welcome news for taxpayers. Another issue we've been watching fairly closely is interest deductibility. What did we learn about those rules? Sure, Dave. So I think one big piece of news that came out of there is that the IRS and Treasury said that there could be a second round of proposed regulations on Section 163J. So the first batch came out in November, and it was pretty comprehensive, and it addressed corporations and partnerships. But the IRS and Treasury reserved on certain important issues like tiered partnerships and self-charged interest. And so if you read the preamble to the regs that came out in November, you could pretty much like glean from that that like there would be a second round of regulations, but a Treasury official at ABA could 
confirm that that is the case, which makes sense. One of the biggest issues, though, from the first set of regs that came out in November was the broad definition of interest. And what they did was they lumped in guaranteed payments for the use of capital as interest. And that's a big deal because some people thought, okay, if they're going to limit our interest write-offs under 163J, can we just use guaranteed payments for capital and write those off under 162? But since guaranteed payments are included in the definition of interest in 163J, people are pretty upset about that. So Treasury officials at ABA said, look, we hear your concerns. We're open to change. But like, let us know why that's too broad and why that wouldn't work. And so they didn't come out one way or another. We have to wait for final regulations on that. But they do hear your concerns and they know that taxpayers are pretty upset. All right, let's turn to the 199 Cap A regs. We got final regulations relatively recently. Uh, What more did we learn? When we got final regulations on 199 Cap A, we also got proposed rules and the safe harbor in a proposed revenue procedure. That seven-page safe harbor has people pretty upset because, one, it's unclear whether rental property qualifies as a trader business under Section 162. So the safe harbor that the IRS issued is meant to sort of like alleviate those concerns where they have a requirement test, 250 hours, you have to keep documents documentation. But what they did was they excluded triple net leases from that proposed safe harbor. And people were upset because the issue with most rental property was that they weren't sure if triple net leases qualified in the first place. So the fact that they didn't qualify under the safe harbor means that they're back to 162. And that's just confusing. People were really upset with the way that the IRS and Treasury defined triple net lease in the safe harbor. And so a Treasury official said on the panel that they are aware that the definition isn't necessarily practical and it has unintended consequences. And so when they finalize that safe harbor, there could be changes. And I think that's a welcome answer that taxpayers wanted. All right, Andrew, I understand that there was some discussion about the process of regulating itself. What did we hear about that? Thanks, Dave. Now, I don't want to disagree with anything that Eric said directly about Treasury and Iris being open to change, but I would say that Kathy Zuba made sure to emphasize that past practice where the IRS would consider comments right up until the regs were drafted unless it would require a full rewriting of the regs. That may not be good guidance to go under for taxpayers looking for this change anymore. With the crush of TCGA guidance and tight timeframes, that means that the IRS is going to be less inclined to hear out concerns that roll in well after deadline if you're giving your comments you know, months afterwards. She was speaking both specifically to guidance on information reporting on life insurance contracts, but also made it clear that she was speaking generally about TCGA guidance as well. Another panel on rule writing had uh, Bill Wilkins, the former chief counsel on it. He made a bold prediction, some would say bold prediction, predicting the demise of temporary regs. Temporary regs were once a very common practice in the IRS. On March 5th, we got a Treasury policy statement about rulemaking. It made several proclamations, one of which was limited use of temporary regs. They would be issuing them without notice and comment and with immediate effectiveness only when they have good cause. For example, and this was said in the policy statement itself, to stop abusive practices right away. Wilkins said that this was representing good practice on the Administrative Procedure Act. The IRS did not want to leave themselves open to challenge in court for violating notice and comment. That was the challenge in the Western District of Texas in the Chamber of Commerce case about the anti-inversion rules. Now, Wilkins said it would be exceedingly rare to address abusive situations, the exception for good cause, since it would involve situations in which notice or proposed regs with a retroactive effective date would be insufficient. We have seen very few temporary regs since TCJA enactment, but it may not be dead letter quite yet. After the ABA, we did get hints at temporary regs on the participation exemption were at OIRA under review on May 14th. So don't write it off just yet, even if it is going to be severely limited. All right. So you bringing up participation exemption regs brings us to the world of international. So what did we learn about international rules at the ABA? 
one of the interesting things we learned about is that the IRS, Treasury, they are committed to getting proposed regs out by the end of the year on previously taxed income, PTI, which has now come to be known as PTEP, previously taxed earnings and profits. We had a notice at the end of last year, and this would follow up on it. PTI rules generally prevent the double tax of income that has already been included, subpart F, now we have guilty. There is considerable complexity in this matter, and it's been highlighted before, including in the notice itself. We now have 16 different annual PTEP accounts to track for taxpayers. The IRS and Treasury, they want to get comments on simplification of this. They have not gotten any comments yet. They're still asking for them, so something for taxpayers to keep in mind. Pivoting a little away from the guidance aspect to digital services tax. This is a very hot topic going on now in the OECD and Europe. The U.S. is seeking to stop unilateral enactment of the DST. The operative phrase on this matter from Chip Harder is vigorous diplomacy. This tax is largely targeting U.S. tech companies. It's levied on digital revenue and applies to revenues from online advertising, sale of consumer data, and revenue made as an intermediary between seller and buyer. The U.S. wants the OECD to be given a chance to reach an alternative. They don't want the digital economy to be singled out as well. The U.S. supports increasing market countries' taxing jurisdiction using a marketing intangibles approach, which would apply broadly without selectively targeting digital business models. According to Harder, the most likely approach would fix a routine return for distribution activities and then split any excess residual profit for highly profitable multinational groups. One of the perpetual issues that we always hear about at at ABA meetings is current litigation. So did we hear anything this year? Yes, we have a, a case to watch, I would say. The economic substance doctrine, that a transaction is valid only if it has a substantial purpose besides reducing tax liability and an economic effect aside from tax. This was codified nine years ago in the code under Section 77010. We have no case law in the tax court in all that time. However, a case worth watching, according to an IRS official, Pilot Series of Fortress Insurance LLC v. Commissioner. It's a micro-captive insurance arrangement. According to the official, the court is not going to be able to dodge it this time. We will have They will have to address the doctrine and penalty provisions. And the official predicted this would be the first in a wave of cases to address this. And finally, speaking more broadly, Chief Counsel Mike Desmond was at the ABA. He made comments about the IRS wanting to be proactive in its managing of taxpayer problems following the TCGA, resolving them before before they become enforcement issues. Problems may surface on taxpayer returns. The IRS wants to address them through guidance rather than audits and litigation. This would reduce the need for enforcement litigation projects that we've seen in conservation easements and micro-captive insurance. The Compliance Assurance Process, CAP, provides that info for some taxpayers, but Desmond is encouraging practitioners to share that info with the IRS regarding transactional challenges. All right, Andrew, that's been great. And Eric, thank you for being here. Thank you for filling us in on all the interesting things we learned at ABA. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dave. And listeners, I should note that we will be linking to many of the stories that we talked about in the show notes so you can learn a bit more about them. And now, instead of coming attractions, we're joined by executive editor for commentary Jasper Smith for more details on the student writing competition. This week, we just want to remind listeners of the June 30th deadline for our student writing competition, the Christopher E. Bergen Award for Excellence in Writing. We invite entries from undergraduate and graduate students writing on the topic of their choice regarding an open question of tax law or policy. The selected winner will be published in Tax Notes alongside accomplished practitioners and professors and receive a one-year subscription to our daily and weekly products. For more information, please visit taxnotes.com forward slash contest.
Thank you, Jasper. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.